Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I miss seeing great shows that 50 states can watch together, no matter whether they're red or blue, old or, old or young, or what have you, and find compelling. Sometimes the biggest challenge for a broadcaster is when you try to appeal to everybody, you often come up with milk toast and it's just boring, whatever. And then when you try to make it really interesting, you've done it, but you've alienated so many people, and it's interesting to just a group. So the trick is how do you come up with a show that's interesting to everybody? And that, I think, maybe we did a better job of that job of that 10 or 15 years ago. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So glad to have you here. So thankful that you are all a part of the show and its success. I'm so grateful to all of you for listening and subscribing and passing it along. It means the world to me. Thank you so much. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter or wherever social media is. Just follow me. I'll be glad to get back to you if you leave me a message. Also, I want to let you know that I will be at the New York Comedy Festival on Wednesday, November 6th at 7 p.m. at The Stand for a live podcast with a very special guest to be announced. I hope you can make it there. You can get tickets at The Stand website or at the New York Comedy Festival website. Very, very excited about my guest today. One of the most legendary television executives in my lifetime and my career. And I'm talking about Gen Maynard. And without further ado... Let me introduce him and get on with this podcast interview, which I know you are going to find fascinating, inspirational. You'll learn a lot about the business and especially in the reality world. This guy is authentic, unique, original, and a really, really special, special man. So here goes. Gen Maynard was named by TV Guide as one of the bold ones in television. Convinced he had a way to draw younger viewers to CBS without alienating its then older core, Gen developed and championed what would become the first broadcast TV reality show, the mega-hit Survivor. 
passed on by all other networks, Survivor not only brought unprecedented mass young viewers to CBS, but also changed the face and economics of TV, inspiring less costly yet highly successful reality TV programming that is ever present in television programming today. Again, developed and oversaw the multiple Emmy Award winning The Amazing Race, the US version of Big Brother, and on CW and VH1, America's Next Top Model. Along with Survivor, these programs are four of the longest running reality TV franchises in the world. Other notable shows that he has worked on include Kid Nation, Power of Ten, and Million Dollar Password. When he was executive vice president of primetime development at NBC, Gen and his team developed My Name is Earl and Heroes, both the highest rated new TV shows in their debut seasons. As vice president of drama development back at CBS, Gen co-developed CSI Crime Scene Investigation, the highest rated new drama in its first season, which became an enduring franchise of several hits, as well as Judging Amy, The District, and others. Gen has had a long tenure at CBS in three separate stints. Most recently, he was asked by the CEO of CBS to return to the company as senior executive vice president to launch a new alternative program studio for CBS. In this new initiative, Gen has been unstoppable, selling four straight-to-series programs. First, he convinced the stars of the hit 90s series Beverly Hills 90210 to go to market with a bold new 90210 take in which they agreed to play heightened versions of themselves in a scripted, serialized dramedy. A fierce bidding war landed the show, a series order at Fox. Then he made a deal with rising movie star and comedian Tiffany Haddish to host Kids Say the Darndest Things, which also yielded a bidding war, landing on the fall schedule at ABC. And he sold two crime reality series to CBS, including Whistleblower, currently in its second season. Gen also has several pilots and other projects at the CW, Epics, Freeform, Lifetime, Oxygen, Pop TV, and YouTube, proving that he's not just an expert in reality television, but all forms of the genre. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, an incredible man, and I'm honored to have him here for an incredibly rare interview. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Gen Maynard. Thank you. It's an honor to be on your podcast. <laughs> oh, this is going to be great. I have so many questions to ask you. All right. But the first one I want to ask you is that you're always, to me, been the most huggable, lovable person that anyone can meet in the business. And even when I've come in and pitched to you, always been an amazingly great experience. But there's people in the business that we know that you helped change their lives and got them more focused and almost trained them on the fly to be the best they could be. I'll give you an example. Brant Pinvidic. Okay, this is a guy who's pitched to you a hundred times. And he told me once that when he came in here, it was like the fear of God coming in because he said that you were a guy who was the best. So you're going in and you're sitting across from somebody who's the best at what they do. They're discriminating. They know everything about the business. They'll know in three minutes whether they like it or not. And he found it to be an incredibly intimidating room, which helped him 
get better and better and better to the point where he felt he finally garnered your respect and he could come in here over and over again whenever you want him to because he knew he was always going to be prepared. He was always going to give an interesting pitch. But he described a Gen that I didn't know, I never saw, like the Gen that had his game face on, the Gen that was really discriminating, the Gen that could be described as a harder room rather than an easier room. Do you feel like you change your personality when different people come in? Are you like a chameleon? Well, I have to take all this in because I don't know that I've heard that I'm huggable. So, so <laughs> that's a new one. Um, you don't feel I'm, lovable? I'm, I'm glad that you feel that way. That's great. <laughs> I do. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I like to play poker. And I think that's always been partly my personality. Not that I think of this as a poker game, but you know, people come in and they they pitch you, and and it is true. You usually know within three to five minutes whether it's something that you're really interested in or not. So whenever I teach students and and people on how to pitch, I always to tell them tell them the first five minutes are like you're most important, and you can only go downhill from there. Um, and so when you listen to pitches so much as as I did in the earlier part of my career you probably start to feel like you've heard it all. But the worst thing you can do, and, and people sometimes do this, they don't realize it, is that they start thinking about something else and they look in a different direction. And they don't mean it, but you can tell they're actually not paying attention. So one of my early mentors, a woman named Anita Addison, um, who was head of a drama and she promoted me to my first junior executive job, once told me, because she was a producer who pitched a lot before, before or in between executive gigs, she told me you have to be really aware of how you look in the room because people work really hard to come in and pitch. And even though you've heard it all, for them, in most cases, I mean, every now and then you'll hear a pitch that it sounds like they made it up on the way to the, <laughs> to the office, but by and large, they, they did a lot of work to prepare for it. So whatever you may think, you want to try to give them at least the respect and the courtesy. So she would teach me to take the fingernails of one hand and embed them deeply into the palm of the other hand, which no one would see, but it would make sure that you stay alert and that you're actually looking at them and paying, paying respect to them. Um, so even if it is a pitch that you know you're not going to buy after the first three to five minutes, you're not thinking about what you have to do in the meeting afterwards, and suddenly your eyes are starting to look in a different direction, and they realize you're not really in sync. So I always try to be attentive um, and respectful, I think, in that sense. Um, but I probably am not the I mean, I'll pass in the room sometimes, um, especially if it's someone I know well. You know, they always say it's best to do a fast pass than a long, excruciating game that ends in a pass. So um, if you're not going to buy the project, sometimes I will do that. But typically speaking, I try to be friendly, so I'm glad I'm huggable to you. Um, but you know, I, I also probably keep a little bit to myself, um, and that's maybe why I looked intimidating or what have you. So When you say the first three to five minutes is the most important. For me, and I've been fortunate that I've been involved in a lot of shows that have sold and many that haven't, but I've never gone in right away with anything. I always like to sit down just to have fun in the first five minutes or so. And I notice a lot of people like to go right into it, like they'll do a pitch with a certain showrunner and they'll say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go right into it here. And I'm always of the philosophy that isn't it nice to just sit down and relax? 
decks and ask people about what they're doing and have fun. And Well, I, look, I think the interac- interaction's great. So the three to five minutes is when we get to the actual pitch. Um, and I don't want to say there's never a time that at 10 minutes in you go, wow, I actually kind of like this. But usually it's those first so many minutes where you go, okay, there's an interesting point of view here that's going to intrigue me. Um, or what more often happens is they start in three to five minutes and they say things that reflect no point of view, so you've already lost your interest. Um, so I think if you have a great story to tell, you should tell it however you want to tell it um, and trust that it will come out right. But I think if you don't have a great story to tell or you haven't figured it out, you can often figure out in three to five minutes you know, where this is probably going to be going. and. You know, look. The others, the others, the other problem is that there are people who are really good storytellers who may not be good pitchers. Now, if they come in with an agent or a studio, they're supposed to be prepared. You know, and sometimes they aren't. So, in my scripted days, I would try to read their work because sometimes it's more important to know can they write this. You also have people who can pitch a great story and they can't write it. So you try to do your homework as well. So I don't want to say it's some rigid rule that you have to get it right in three to five minutes. But in the alternative world, the reality world and games and stuff, I'd say those are pretty essential to to be upfront about um, because you're ultimately pitching concepts. And if you can't tell me what the concept is in a clear way where I'm intrigued, then, you know, 10, 20 minutes later into it, it's probably going to be so convoluted that I, I've, I'm playing polite, but I've, I've lost sort of the sense as to what the show is or how I'm supposed to sell it to an audience. So um, it's a little bit different on the alternative side. Do you ever sit down and you hear a pitch and as commonly happens to you, you are thinking to yourself, uh, listen, maybe you shouldn't quit your day job and you pass on the show and then you read two weeks later that another network bought the show and you're like how is it possible that that show sold the way they presented it or that never happened there have been a few times on the scripted side where projects got bought into development but i don't think they've ever gone farther than that so yes that does happen sometimes um but i've been lucky like this isn't to try to somehow say i'm i i to brag or anything. I, I, I was lucky, for instance, American Idol was never pitched to me. So I can truly say that, that there wasn't a hit show out there that became a hit that I somehow passed on, nor was The Bachelor. Um, never in your life. It's never happened where somebody came in and you said, that's not for me. And, and it became and a hit elsewhere. No. That's but, but I'm very I'm lucky because, like I said, I might have missed it on, on a couple of those. They just happened for various reasons not to bring it to CBS. Um, and so so m- in those situations, I'm more you know, concerned about why is it I didn't get to hear the pitch. Um, but the reality is that I, I've been lucky that I haven't ever seen something and then pass and then see it become a hit somewhere else. One of the greatest things that can happen when you're going out with a show, now you've been on multiple sides. You've been on the scripted side. You've been on the drama side, comedy. You've done game shows. You've done reality shows. You've done hybrid shows. You've been on the network side where you've been buying for the network. You've been on the studio side where you're buying for the studio where you go out and pitch. So you've probably pitched to people that have pitched to you in the past or something like that. So you've been in every situation possible. Which role in your lifetime did you love the most? I I loved a lot of moments. I I loved my very first 
few years as a drama executive. Um, that was my, when you were around CSI. That was around the CSI time. Yeah, it was actually a little before then. I was the number two in the department when we developed CSI. Um, but before then, it was uh, um, shows like older CBS shows like uh, Family Law and Judging Amy, um, The District. Um, and I was lucky to work for people who were really great mentors. So I was the kid in the candy store going, wow, I can't believe it. I'm actually in these meetings where you're talking scheduling and, and you're talking different ideas. And Les Moonves was at the head of the table. Um, and like I said, this woman named Anita Addison, who was truly the person who taught me everything in those early years, would take the time to explain it all to me. So that was probably my one of my favorite times because you don't have the pressure of the world on your shoulders yet. But you're just soaking it all in and learning and you're having people who in my case i was very lucky that that i had people who were executives who were former agents who were former producers or directors so i was able to learn from all of them at the same time so i would say that was a really fun time um and then the second is for me it was all about hit shows because what i love about television is the idea that you can get a national conversation going and you can get people like sitting there saying you know what i don't want to go out tonight because i don't want to miss this episode you know or or there's a finale you know the finale of the first season of survivor and people in the airport were literally running from the planes they were getting off of to the bar to watch it so they didn't miss what happened and being able to create that sort of feeling on a national level i think is like the coolest thing so for me whether scripted or unscripted i really love the idea that you know you're developing show that you think is going to be ahead and look more times than not whatever happens and it doesn't quite become that hit but you don't give up and you keep going i believe in this writer i believe in that visionary or i believe in this concept and that's the most fun and i think in those early days that's the way i always thought and i think sometimes you get jaded when you get a little older and there's a lot more politics and 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 sort of bureaucracy and other things to deal with but being able to keep that sort of pure idea of i think this is a hit show and figure out how to get it to fruition is the cool thing um so when you say the favorite times, the other favorite time would be um, when I was a drama executive and then I was developing Survivor on the side, um, which I thought could be a really big thing for CBS. And I don't think many people necessarily believed it could be. They thought maybe it's a one-time stunt or what have you. Um, but being given the opportunity to go ahead and try to figure it out was a really cool thing because I was a junior executive at the time. And um, and then obviously the success made it you know, even more fun. But I, I, what I love about the business is just being able to say, I want to do something that's different. I don't want to do something that has already been done 10 times before. Um, and sometimes you'll fall flat on your face and hopefully sometimes you'll have a big success that makes it all worthwhile. So those moments are probably the times that were the most fun for me. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, 
we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey, everybody. And I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount, a $100 discount, and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like but the air inside my house it feels heavy at times before i got this product and now it got rid of all the bad air in my house the dust the pet hair the pollen it just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home and for me when i got this product it was amazing the difference that i found in the air in my house and it's normally six hundred dollars and you can check amazon right now and you'll see but for all of you listening today I can offer you $300 off $300 just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry that's airdoctorpro.com promo code Barry and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world what always fascinated me about Survivor was not the show. Maybe it's because I'm in the business. So Survivor comes to CBS. Les Moonves, the president, obviously one of the smartest men ever to work in television. You're at the same table with him. You're a junior executive, but there's a decision that's made similar to taking the chance, making a bold move when the network they don't do that. It's like, how many times do agencies sit around the table saying, okay, this is what the network is looking for. Well, I got this show called Survive. Hey, they're not doing reality. They don't do reality. Yeah, but I think it, it could be. No, they don't do that. So there's so many no's right. before you even go in. and But the network says yes, obviously, because something happened in that pitch meeting that was extraordinary. In your mind, what do you think happened to make that show be the first reality show for CBS when for the last 25 years or even more, they hadn't done anything like that? Right. Um, I think that it's a couple of things. One, I will give less credit because I was a junior executive who sat in a cubicle back then. When we were junior executives at CBS. All our peers at other networks still had offices and even shared assistants. Um, and at CBS, you still answered your own phone and you sat in a cubicle. Um, and I happened to be the cubicle closest to the reception area in the bathroom. So 
every day there would be multiple people coming to ask me where the bathroom was, you know? And you're thinking, wow, I'm an executive in television and I'm still telling people where the bathroom is. But the best thing to happen from that cubicle was the guy in the cubicle across from mine who was an assistant to someone um, said, hey, Gen, can you take this phone call? Um, it's this guy named Conrad Riggs, who at the time was Mark Burnett's manager, who had worked in business affairs at Disney, where this guy happened to work, and that's how he knew him. And he said, he has some show idea, and they're getting passed on everywhere, and maybe you can figure it out, because, you know, whatever. So I was like, sure. And so sitting in that cubicle it enabled me to at least hear the one-line thing from this guy I didn't know anything about, but I thought, wow, that sounds super cool. And as the youngest exec at the time at CBS who watched Real World and Road Rules on MTV, you know, I kept thinking there's got to be a way to take what cable did and make it bigger, you know? And for years at that point, cable had been taking what broadcast did, but making it more niche, you know? And I think that if you look in terms of television history, Survivor may have been the first time that broadcast stole from cable, but made it made it bigger. And so when I heard that one line, that really resonated. Um, and then the other part of the puzzle, like I said, is to give Leslie credit because even though I was in a cubicle, and and my mentor Anita Addison, who really mentored me and taught me how to interact with Leslie and had me in meetings where I where he got to know me. He'd never held it against me that I was the low guy on the totem pole. So I could still go into his office and ask him a question, and he was very happy to talk to me. Um, whereas I think a lot of times companies are structured such that there's so many levels and layers that whoever's making the decisions at the end is never actually hearing the idea from the person who really is trying to champion it. It's gone through so many different levels. Um, and that's why I think so many good things get passed on. So. You know, when you think about Survivor and the fact that Mark Burnett had pitched it to several other companies and it was getting passed on everywhere through the normal channels, and then as a junior exec who saw things a little bit differently, I was able to at least respond to it because it resonated with me, and then I had the ability, thanks to Leslie, to be able to go straight to him. You know, it bypassed all these different channels and processes that usually get in the way of things happening. Um, and it's ironic because you would think as I get more experience and and move upwards in this business, it should get easier, therefore. And the truth is, sometimes I wish I could be that junior exec again in the cubicle with that relationship because it's a lot simpler than having to, you know, play the traditional game that you have to do when you actually are now supposed to go through all the different, you know, channels and what have you. So. In the short of it, I think that's why it was able to happen that way. Um, if I were five or six years later in my career, I may have been, you know, I may have been one of those persons that couldn't get it through. So, so take our audience through the process of from when you took that phone call to how it worked for them to get a pitch meeting at a network that didn't want to do reality to getting it to the executives hearing it and then ultimately less saying you know if they can get the budget down let's give it a shot yeah it was um so so i heard the one-liner on the phone and i said well why don't you come on in and the first thing is as a junior executive in a cubicle there's not much of a place to meet so then i asked someone who uh, was a higher level person, whether I could bring this pitch to him and me. And he sort of had a title that involved non-traditional programming or something. So this sort of would fall under him. Um, and they pitched a project. I thought it was super cool. And then as often happens, he went to someone else and then he came back and said, no, nah, this guy's not really Mark Burnett. He hasn't really done that much. I think we should just pass. 
and I was like, yeah, no, I don't think so. I think it's a really cool idea. So the first thing I had to do was figure out how internally to play the politics because I, w- I didn't want to pass and I really believed this could be a hit. And, and yet at the same time, I have someone who's slightly higher level than me telling me, I think we should pass. So I sort of batted it forward and he's like, well, if you think you could do something fine. And then he kind of forgot about it and that worked to my advantage. Um, and then it was a matter of kind of figuring out with Mark what exactly is the show and um, talking to a bunch of other people in the company who thought this was a really cool idea and sort of responded to my excitement. Um, Chris Ender, who's uh, in publicity, was like key behind it back then. Um, And Kelly Call, who was scheduling, now president of the entertainment division, really responded. So I knew I was getting excitement from around the room, um, which I think probably helped me also with Leslie, who used to tell the story that he kicked me out of the office and that this was a really, but the truth is he never did. He said, yeah, if you can figure it out, go talk to sales. You you have my permission, talk to the, you know, the people in sales in New York. So I called them and of course they were sort of excited by the idea. And a lot of people don't understand this part of the business and we don't talk about it a lot. But when you have a show that you're thinking about picking up before you say yes, back then you would want to talk to sales because they're the ones selling the commercial programming and they don't think they can sell it for that show they're going to tell you we can't do it yeah and it's funny because there's a lot of times where you're scared to talk to sales because they may not see the vision and therefore make a very short that yeah we don't think we can whatever and it could be a hit show that if they saw it you know they would so so it's always a scary proposition, but in this case, I had nothing to lose. And I think the idea of doing product placement in the show, you know, was really intriguing to them because at that point they weren't doing things like that. So I think that got them kind of excited to be able to do something different. And ultimately we got their support. Um, and so it really was a matter of getting the support of a lot of people, but I think being really enthusiastic and excited about the idea made a lot of sense. And and, and uh, I want to jump to another subject related to this, because earlier we were talking about pitches in the first three to five minutes being the most important. So, you know, Mark Burnett is the consummate salesman. I mean, he he's terrific at knowing how to pitch. So imagine coming to a room and, and saying something like, like, imagine if we take 16 people from all across the country, you know, men, women, different ages, different geographical backgrounds and we strand them on strand them on a deserted island and make them fend for themselves we give them no food no water and for 39 days they have to figure out how to survive and one by one they're going to vote each other off until there's one left in the end like that in itself at that time was like wow you know and I didn't yet know reality. What, what's, what are the games, immunity? Like, none of that even came into play. Yeah, that, that's the next part of the conversation. But just the idea of getting a whole group of people together to live like Robinson Crusoe or Swiss Family Robinson and these sort of stranded type, type shows and then vote each other off, you know, until there's one left really resonated and you know you sit there and you go you say this to someone at lunch and they go is that ethical like you're going to end with someone just getting kicked off like isn't that just me but they couldn't stop talking about it and how often do you have a pitch where you can say it in one or two sentences and you can have a half hour conversation based on that without even knowing the other details so again just a really great concept that was really well pitched um, and I think the fact that you could get people's imaginations to start going forward based on a couple of sentences had a lot to do with getting people 
behind the project team. And so you got sales behind it. You got a few key executives behind it. You go back and talk to Les. What's the well, conversation? There was nothing to be lost because what sales did with with Mark and, and you know at the time it was Joe Aversé and Joanne Ross. Um, and, and a great team of people, they they basically went out and got a bunch of sponsors to agree to help finance the show, you know, pay a certain amount of money. And basically, unlike most shows where you have to get certain ratings and all that, in this case, they were basically saying, we're going to go on this experiment. They're going to pay what was really an incredible steal when you could consider the ratings they ultimately got for the price that first season. But the show was basically like there was no money to be lost. So at that point, you're like, well, what's the risk? You know, and don't get me wrong, there's a risk in terms of we need to do it right and I want to treat people correctly to being in the show and you want to do it safely and all that. But just from a, you know, we're going to spend this money on the show and are we going to make our money back? There, there was no risk anymore. So it was a very, I think at that point, it was a very easy decision to be made. And for those of you who don't know, the finale of the first season of Survivor probably did the numbers of the worst Super Bowl numbers that there ever were, which is probably between 60 and 80 million people watched that show, right? Yeah, some, somewhere like that. It may have been more when you consider the people who come and go and, you know, what have you. But yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was cool. And, and again, for me, as a broadcaster, what I loved is we were bringing so many different people from the country together in a really intriguing way. So you'd have rural people, you'd have city people, you had old people, you had young. You know, we didn't have gay characters on many television shows, if any, back then on CBS. Um, and so to have um, Richard Hatch um, as our gay corporate trainer, you know, in, in this show was actually kind of I don't want to say groundbreaking, but it was certainly forward thinking at the time. And the fact that he became the star and the winner, you know, made him into an even even a bigger piece of the puzzle. So it was really cool to be able to do a show where you're bringing together kids and older people and what have you. And, you know, if you think in terms of television before this point on CBS, you know, before Leslie came, they tried to change the demographic profile of the network overnight when the year they did uh, Central Park West which was, you know, from Darren Starr. And I've seen every episode of Melrose Place, 90210, also CPW. Um, but it was, you know, this was the old skewing network, and suddenly they put this young programming on. And I think I read somewhere that at that point in time, they spent more money promoting Central Park West than any show in CBS's history. And ratings-wise, it bombed. I think it even got beaten by Party of Five, which was a very small show at the time on Fox, against it. And I think the lesson from there was that the older people watching CBS at the time sort of just abandoned ship seeing the promos for that show, and the younger people never came to see the show because it's CBS. So what was cool for me about Survivor was, you know, I, I came from the real world, Road Rules, MTV sort of, you know, viewer generation, if you will. But this was a show that was going to bring all those young people in without alienating any of the older people because they're part of it too. And so my hope in doing it, and one of the reasons I was so into it as a programmer was like, was, was this idea that I had that maybe we can actually get those young people to watch, watch a show on CBS and keep the older people there too because it would interest everybody. Um, so that, that was like a really important part of it for me as well. How soon after the show launched did somebody come up to you and say, you're not in the cubicle anymore, your office is over here? Uh, um, you know, it's funny because 
by that point, before it launched, I already had an office, but I was just a director level person. They still hadn't given me a budget to get furniture. And I had a sofa <laughs> that we found from the basement of TVC that didn't even have the pillows for you to sit back. And it was so embarrassing because we went out to buy different pillows to try to put it there. And people would come and sit on this sofa and expect to lean back in a cushion and fall back onto this hard thing. So I had an office, but I had like the crappiest furniture you could find. So it wasn't too long after that that I at least got the new furnishings. So. Now, one of the things I think about you in terms of the story is a little bit different take. I think of Jeff Cesario, who Dennis Miller called and said, I want you to be my executive producer of Dennis Miller Live. And Jeff is like, I don't know how to tell you this, but I don't think I've gotten a cup of coffee on a set before. It doesn't matter, pal. You're my executive producer. And four shows in, they win the Emmy Award. And now Jeff is an Emmy award-winning executive producer after four shows and never doing it before. And then the next year they submitted the second show and that won an Emmy. So here you are, you're a young executive with no furniture, yet you have the biggest show on television, most watched show on television. What's next? How do you say to yourself, what's next? How am I going to top this? I don't believe every piece, everything you try is ever going to work. We all know we're going to have failures, but I still think if you can at least have a vision and an excitement as to why this is potentially going to be a hit, that's the coolest thing. And I think, you know, I'll be honest, like I think what's sort of disappointing about television today is there's a lot less of, particularly younger execs, sitting and going, this is a hit show or I can't wait to watch a show. Like I, I talk sometimes to students in classes and they look at me with a blank stare when I talk about the idea of a hit show or the idea of running to, you know, to the, uh, the pub to see the finale of a show because you don't want to miss it, you know, when it's airing live. Um, and they just look at you with a sort of a deadpan face and they don't know what you're talking about. And I think that's sort of Disappointing, And yes, some of it is because you can DVR or whatever, which is part of it. But if you're really excited about a show, you will watch it. And there's still a few shows, Walking Dead, you know, when it came out, Empire, especially in the first season, where people were watching it live and, and it was must-see television. Um, but I think that idea of like just saying, I think this could be a hit because of this reason and I want to try to do it because this, this and this. I don't see many people really thinking that way or, 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 or trying to do that kind of thing. That's the part that's sort of a little disappointing for today. So for me, back then, it wasn't like, oh, how do I top this? It was just like, okay, what's another cool show you can do? And, and at that point, I became head of reality for CBS or head of alternative, as they call it. So it's like trying different shows from there. Um, and I wasn't sure I wanted to leave scripted, to be honest. So my deal that I made at the time was that I, I would do alternative for at least one year, and if I didn't like it, I could go back to scripted afterwards. Um, but then, you know, after that year, it's like we got more stuff going on, and it sort of made sense for a while to stay there. But at a certain point, I was like, okay, I'm done with this. I want to go back to scripted. It, it, for me, television's television. I just want to help get great shows out there. You've been in four decades of television, right? Me? Um, as a viewer or, or? As a viewer and an executive. Correct. As a viewer, um, I probably started in the 70s, but yeah. Yeah, so five yeah, decades yeah, exactly. you've been watching television. Yeah. Do you believe that 
the show is on television through all platforms are higher quality now or do you believe they're lower quality because for me I can't believe I'm saying this because normally when there's more things in other words let's say stand-up comedy like the more comedy clubs that open, the less the quality of the shows are. The more baseball teams that expand, the less quality of the sport is. Yet, it appears to me that there's more extraordinary shows now than there were back then. Am I wrong? I think that's an interesting question. And I'm, I sort of think the answer is yes and no. Um, I think that shows like All in the Family um, were extraordinary television that still resonate today. My assistant who did not I mean, you know, he was born way after All in the Family went off the air. And your assistant is amazing. Uh, He's uh, Sean Bowman. Um, And he um, you know, thanks to me I'm sitting here saying I want you to watch these shows like I'm making him watch certain shows and now I know he's just the other weekend he was watching a bunch of these episodes. He's like this is amazing television, you know. I'm not sure that there are any shows today that I think are on the comedy side, at least, that are of the caliber of of, of a show like that. Um, I think on the drama side, there's certainly a lot. But it's funny when you say, are they better? Yes, I think they are better, partly because there's so many more shows. Um, so it makes sense that there'll be a lot of them that are good, but also because our sensibilities are so different today. You know, it's the storytelling is so different. I mean, when you think of a show like Dallas, which had a big impact on me as, as a younger person, which is partly why I wanted to be in TV, I was addicted to Dallas and Falcon Crest and Dynasty. You know, at that time, it was sort of a new idea in primetime to tell stories that continued from episode to episode. Most shows were just episodic TV shows. And then these big primetime soaps came on and they changed the form, you know, and so then you had these cliffhangers where you couldn't wait till September to see what's going to happen next and and that sort of feeling of excitement that made me sort of giddy about television back then um, and then that sort of I think impacted the standalone episodes in the sense that you started having shows more like I know NYPD Blue where they had episodic stories with had a beginning middle and end but the character arcs continued from episode to episode so television continues to evolve obviously and and i think today a lot of the shows are so fast-paced in terms of twists and turns that if they were on in the 70s i think people said that's terrible i can't even keep up with it but we think differently today so i feel like a lot of it is in the context of who we are today yeah i think there's a lot of great television today i also think there's a lot of just really mediocre stuff out there too um and and i think the the, i think with all the cable networks and the streaming and what have you there's so many shows that are being um, built for certain groups of people and i miss seeing great shows that 50 states can watch together no matter whether they're red or blue or old or young or what have you and find compelling sometimes the biggest challenge for a broadcaster is when you try to appeal to everybody you often come up with milk toast and it's just boring whatever and then when you try to make it really interesting you've done it but you've alienated so many people and it's interesting to just a group so the trick is how do you come up with a show that's interesting to everybody and that i think maybe we did a better job that job of that 10 or 15 years ago I remember a show that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was the first drama to tell the story in sequential order. It was Murder One. Hmm. 
and it failed miserably. That was Daniel Benzali, right, or something? It was, yeah. I love that show. I did too. And I watched. I watched both seasons. It was two seasons, oh, I believe. I think it was two, but I watched both seasons. Way I ahead of its time. Mark Buckland directed the second to last episode of the first season, and it was such an amazing piece of work. And again, I was a young executive, and I brought it into Anita, who herself was a director. I said, "You have to watch this," you know, and. And I was really proud of myself because she's like, this guy's someone you have to, you know, at the time, you, I think he was still relatively young. Um, and she's this is a great find. Um, whereas when I first began and I would go, I think this, she's like, why do you think that director's like, and she's like, that's not direction. What are you talking about? You know? So I actually considered murder one, like, like that one moment was like a little triumph for me to get the approval that I found someone that I think is a great director. And my mentor agreed with me. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I always talk about the holy shit moments, and those are the things that mean something. And if you have more of those in a show, chances are you're going to keep your audience for the next, and they're going to be loyal to you. Like you said, you did a great reality show that millions and millions of people watched in the beginning, Survivor. But there were reality shows before that, and there were formulas in those reality shows that when You know, when we go to a restaurant, we don't say, hey, who invented the restaurant? We don't know who invented the restaurant. All we know is that we like this particular restaurant because it innovated certain things. Certain things are different and unique about it. And even though the formulas are the same of storytelling and right. conflict and love and lost love and sort of like the movie with Tom Hanks and the volleyball, I forget the name. Castaway. Castaway. You can see similarities where a guy is in love, comes back, right. and she's with somebody else. But I think I understand what you're talking about. It's like how many shows are there like All in the Family was today where you can honestly say, I've never... I've never even seen anything remotely like this before. That's what I look for in television. Now I'm just one person. No, I, I'm, I'm the same too. And I think, and I, don't get me wrong, I like television that's just really well done, even if it doesn't speak to 50 states. Um, so, so I think there are shows that are really well done that speak to certain niche audiences. But for me, it's the ones that are exciting are the ones that can still bring the whole country together yeah well one and, of those shows yeah. you worked on 
that I would say certainly brought the whole country together and, and was essentially, in my mind, the survivor of drama shows was CSI. And you talk about this again, and this is, I think, this is one of your winning formulas. So Mark Burnett came in with Survivor, and the executive said, yeah, he's not really that experienced. I think we should pass. No, no, there's something here. Anthony Zyker never went in a room before and pitched a show or whatever it was, and another new guy, and you saw something in somebody. And I think that one of your things that I realize now so much is that it's not that you haven't bought shows from people who have been doing it for decades. But you're the kind of person who realizes, maybe based on your own career, everybody's got to do something for the first time. Everybody's got to make it work for the first time. And if it has to be their first time and it's extraordinary, I think I'd like to be the guy that's there. Yeah. But most executives are like, if I pass on this, it's easier to keep my job. Right. And it's easier to say no. And if somebody else takes it, that's a risk I have to take, but what's the chance of that happening? No, and that's the most frustrating thing um, because even today there's a couple of shows that I have in development that I think could be the groundbreaking big shows for the next so many years, and everyone says we want those shows. And then either they don't get it or they like it, but they don't know how to sell it upwards to all the different layers that they have to go through. And that's the frustrating thing is that people always say we want something different, and then it's so rare that they actually do that. And it's much easier as an executive to buy a show from someone who's had a couple of hits. And certainly, if they've, they're proven, you're dumb not to try to go after people who are proven. But from a political standpoint, it's the easy way out because if the show fails, you go, well, you know, it was that person who said a bunch of hits. How, you know, how was I to know? Whereas if you took this shot on someone who didn't, it's very possible they'll come back to you and go, what the hell were you thinking? You know, and um, you're never going to get fired because you bought Steven Spielberg's The Lot. Right. You're not going to get fired because of that. No. And that's the whole thing. It's like, you know, I did a show at NBC when I was head of scripted development there. Um, and it was a really cute half hour with Tori Spelling. Um that was sort of about her life growing up and it's sort of exaggerated but inspired by things and 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 it was a fun it was a fun pilot and i remember in the big meeting there bob wright said in front of everyone how the hell did we ever decide to make this this thing and everyone just sat there silently because no one's going to whatever and suddenly it's like I'm the guy that's like the bad guy for making this dumb decision to buy this stupid, you know. Well, this show ended up going to VH1 and became a series there. And it's funny because when I left NBC, the variety back then we got it on paper, you know, had my my it had an, uh, an article about me coming back to CBS on the front page and on the back page were all the reviews of this pilot that Tori did, which were phenomenal reviews from all the critics and, quite frankly, better reviews than any of the half hours at NBC that got picked up got. Um, but you sit there and you try to take a chance on something that's different for a certain network, and if they don't get it, then they're not sitting there trying to say, hey, I don't get it, but I'm glad you at least tried to do something different, because that, to me, should be what everyone's trying to do. Instead, there's a tendency to easily sort of condemn you. Going back to CSI, I do have to say, like Nina Tassler was the head of drama when we bought incredible, that project. So incredible, incredible executive. So I, so I appreciate the Anthony Zyker thing, but she deserves credit for um, 
for actually buying that project. But you know, Anthony was a was a really terrific writer, and I had read some spec scripts he had written. He wasn't produced yet at that time, I don't believe. And then we put uh, Carol Mendelson, who was a seasoned showrunner. You know, and what I loved about putting Carol there, there is she ran Melrose Place, which is a show back then that I saw every episode of. And I remember some people saying Melrose Place, like real, you know. And I kept saying. But Melrose Place is all about twists and turns, and she made it so much fun. And this is about twists and turns, and I think the writing, there's a similarity in terms of being able to write that kind of structure. Um, And the pairing, obviously, worked out to be really terrific. But yeah, for me, it's really exciting when you can find a new voice or a new talent or or someone who who can be the next big thing on television. Um, And sometimes I don't think we do that enough. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatru, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. Too many people, I think, for broadcast now are pitching cable-like shows, um, which is to say they're not thinking about the fact that a broadcast show that's successful has to get people from all 50 states. And you may not like Trump voters, but they're a huge part of the potential audience. So alienating them is just silly because all you're doing is is killing killing your ratings. And I think there's a lot of stories that could be told that could bring people together and and expose people to different kinds of people in a really good way. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.